0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. I have your Bibles, and I hope you do as you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And, uh, and while you're turning there, I wonder how much does it take for you to lose your joy? How much does it take for you to lose your joy? I, I remember a time a few years ago where I uh, certainly lost my joy. Uh, We were uh, on a family vacation. We were up in Atlanta, and we had some friends of ours who had had blessed us with some great uh, tickets for some great seats uh, to watch uh, an Atlanta Braves game. It's my favorite team. We were taking our boys to the game, and uh, we stopped off uh, before the game at a place called the Varsity. Uh, It's just a a classic uh, diner there in in Atlanta, and uh, got some food to eat, then we got back onto the road. And, uh, and we were, I mean, probably a mile uh, from uh, the stadium at that time, Turner Field. And uh, we could see the stadium. It was, it was uh, over an hour before the game would start. I thought we had plenty of time. Uh, but if you have uh, driven around Atlanta much, you know that sometimes the traffic can be just horrendous. And so we got off on this road. And even though we were in sight of the stadium, I mean, we were not moving. It, it was a parking lot. And uh, for over the next hour. And so as we were sitting there and it was getting closer and closer to the uh, game time, my blood pressure was rising and rising. And, uh, and my wife, Megan, uh, looked at me with that look that I think God has blessed every wife with, with this particular look. And it's a look that doesn't even say anything, just a look that says you're acting like a three-year-old child and you need to calm down. Well, by the time we got parked and got into the game, it was uh, actually the third inning uh, of the game. And uh, in the end, you know, it ended up working out fine. In fact, our kids were so little then that probably if we had gotten there for the first inning, they wouldn't have made it all the way uh, to the end. But but suffice it to say, when I was in that van stuck on that road, I lost my joy. Well, what about you? What's the last thing that caused you to lose your joy. Maybe it was something a little uh, like, uh, like my baseball game experience. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it was, uh, uh, you know, going through a drive through and, and, and the guy gets your order wrong and you don't realize it until you got all the way home. Maybe for some of you, though, here today, it's, it's something bigger. Maybe it was finding out that you had lost your job. Maybe it was seeing a relationship come to an end. I may be getting some uh, very bad health news delivered to you. But in all of those things, whether the circumstances of our life are good or bad, God wants to give us a deep, settled joy that the circumstances of our life cannot take away. And Paul has something to teach us about that. We're going to talk in a minute about all the things he experienced on his way to Rome. And as he's sitting there writing this letter, he's sitting in prison in the city of Rome. and, And yet he writes his most joyful letter under those circumstances. What was his secret? I believe today that Paul wants to share with us, that the Lord wants to share with us the secret to how we can have joy even in jail. Let's read God's word together. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12, says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we take the next few minutes and as we think about your word and study your word together, Lord, would you teach us this secret how we can have joy in the midst of difficult Circumstances and how your gospel can move forward in our lives, even especially when we go through hard times. Where would your Holy Spirit open our eyes to the truth of your word, even now, that we might hear it? In Jesus' name, amen. In Paul's letter uh, to this church in the city of Philippi, this church that he helped to plant. Uh, He has already warmly greeted them in verses 1 and 2. Uh, He has already shared with them in verses 3 through 11 that he prayed for them often, and he's even shared with them what he has been praying for them about. And when we come to verse 12, our text for today, we're really moving into the body of this letter, uh, to what the Apostle Paul really wants to get across to the believers in this church that he loves so much. Now, he knows that these believers in Philippi were greatly concerned about him. They were concerned about his well-being. And so he wants to write to them. He wants to put their mind at ease. And that's what he's seeking to do, even in the verses that we just read. But along the way, as Paul is telling him, them what he is doing and how he's doing, we, we get a window. We get a window into the way Paul was handling being in jail and everything else that was happening to him. And what you see as you read these verses is that amazingly, Paul was joyful. Paul was hopeful. Paul was positive and optimistic about what God was doing through this difficult situation. And, and Paul models for us, even living here as we are, 2,000 years after Paul walked the earth, he's, he models for us how to walk through difficult circumstances when we find ourselves in the middle of them. And maybe today you find yourself in the middle of a really tough circumstance. And as we study together and learn what God wants us to learn in this passage, we can find this secret of how to have joy even in jail. I want us to notice some things about Paul's perspective I want us to see Paul's perspective in this text, first of all, on his chains, and secondly, Paul's perspective on his critics, and then finally, Paul's perspective on his Christ. But first off, let's consider this, Paul's perspective on his chains. Paul starts out in verse 12, and he says, But I want you to know. That's an expression that Paul uses several times throughout his letters, but only when he's about to tell his readers something that's very significant, something very important. Paul is saying, I really want you to get what I'm about to say to you. And then he says this in the rest of verse 12, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, what are the things that have happened to Paul? Well, to be Honest, they were a lot of terrible things. I mean, first off, he's sitting in prison as he writes this letter. That's not great to start with. But then, if you know a little bit of the backstory, you know there were a lot of terrible things that transpired in the years leading up to this. And Acts, the book of Acts, tells us this backstory that Paul traveled to Jerusalem. Because he believed God was leading him to go there, even though in every city and every town where Paul went, people were warning him that if he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested. But he just continued there because he believed and knew that this was God's will and his plan for his life. But sure enough, once he gets to Jerusalem, Paul is arrested. Uh, Shortly after, he was almost killed by an angry mob uh, in the temple. Paul is then taken to Caesarea, a city by the sea, and there he is held as a prisoner for two years. Not because he had been convicted of any crime, but simply because the Roman governors wanted uh, to earn some political brownie points with the Jewish leaders. They kept him in prison. And finally, after two years, Paul appeals to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, and thus begins a very eventful uh, boat journey that you can read about in the book of Acts, where they uh, go into this terrible storm, this tempest. They end up getting shipwrecked uh, on an island called Malta, where they spend the next three months, and finally, Paul makes it to the city of Rome. Now, we know that Paul always wanted to go to Rome. In fact, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter one, he tells them how I long to come to you. I want to come to Rome. I want to have some fruit among you, just as I've had in other cities. I want to share the gospel there in Rome. But I'm sure Paul did not expect that the way that he would get to Rome would be in chains as a prisoner. So when Paul references here, the things which have happened to me, these are the things which have happened to him, and they weren't good things, or at least we would not consider them good things. And I'm sure the Philippian church would not have considered them good things either. They would have thought, not only is this bad for Paul, but this is bad for the kingdom. This is bad for what God is doing because here is our greatest missionary. And here he is, uh, locked away, not able to travel, not able to plant churches, not able to share the gospel. They would have thought, this is not good. And yet Paul writes to them and he said, that actually isn't how it's turning out at all. In fact, God is sovereign. That's the implication of everything Paul is writing here. God is sovereign over the details of my life. God is sovereign over the details of our life even today. And so Paul says that actually the gospel is advancing more because of my imprisonment than it would have otherwise. Again, listen to the words of verse 12 the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The the word furtherance there is is a word that means progress. It was a word that was used for explorers or even armies that were on the move that had to advance through difficult terrain and had to overcome many obstacles. Paul says that's what's happening. The gospel is knocking down barriers. The gospel is knocking down obstacles. The gospel is advancing and progressing because of my imprisonment. And in the next two verses, he shares two different ways that the gospel was progressing. First of all, he says the gospel is moving forward among a captive audience. Look in verse 13. He says, "...so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ." Uh, That phrase, the the palace guard, is translated in the ESV as the imperial guard, Uh, and that is literally who these troops were. These were hand-picked elite soldiers who were guardians of the Roman emperor, and apparently one of their duties was to guard prisoners, including this prisoner named Paul. You know, the last couple of verses in the book of Acts tell us what Paul's incarceration was like, listen to these words, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So during this uh, imprisonment in Rome, uh, now he would have a second imprisonment subsequent to this that would be much different. But during this imprisonment, Paul was not in a dungeon per se, uh, but, but he was under what we might call house arrest. And so people were able to come to Paul and leave, and he was able to share the gospel with them very openly, very boldly. But during this time, Paul was still not able to leave, and he also would have uh, wore a pair of handcuffs about 18 inches in length, and one of the ends of those handcuffs would have been strapped on Paul's wrist, and the other one of those handcuffs would have been strapped on the wrist of one of these imperial guardsmen. Of course, they would have taken shifts throughout uh, the day. And so over the course of two years, you can imagine that there were dozens and dozens and dozens of these Imperial Guardsmen who took a turn being handcuffed to the Apostle Paul. Uh, You know, when I uh, fly, I usually pray about uh, who is going to be sitting next to me in the seat. And pray that the Lord would give me an opportunity to be able to share the gospel. And many times that has happened. Sometimes I think folks are fine with that and they enjoy talking about spiritual things. And, but, but, you know, sometimes maybe they're not. But, you know, the way that I look at it is where are they going to go? <laughs> right? Unless they brought a parachute, unless they're planning on jumping out of the plane, they're pretty much trapped there next to me. You know, they might be thinking, good grief, I can't believe I had to get a seat next to a preacher and listen to this. But again, it's it's a captive audience, right? Where are they going to go? You talk about a captive audience. This is a captive audience right here. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been handcuffed to the Apostle Paul? (laughs) I mean, he probably didn't wait two seconds before he told those people about Jesus. And, And what we read in the text is over the course of time, it became evident. It became clear to all of them, first of all, that Paul was not a criminal, right? That he wasn't incarcerated because he had done anything wrong, it became clear to them that his chains were in Christ, that he was incarcerated because of his faith in Christ. But what we find out in chapter 4 of Philippians is that there were some members of Caesar's household, almost certainly included some of these imperial guardsmen, who came to put their faith in Jesus Christ and became a part of the church in Rome. And so here is the Apostle Paul, this missionary. He's not able to go out. He's not able to travel. And yet he's able to share the gospel with the soldiers that are handcuffed to his wrists. And some of them come to put their faith in Jesus. Church, it's the same for you and I today. God wants to use the difficult circumstances that we go through in our life for his glory and for the progress of. Of the gospel maybe you're not in prison uh, today of course you're not you wouldn't be here but maybe you feel like uh, you're in a prison maybe you're going through something that feels like a prison right now something you would have never picked for yourself to go through or to experience and yet god wants to use us if we will let him a sovereign god will sometimes allow difficult circumstances to come into our life. But you know what I have found to be true is that when that happens, it's almost as if God is handing us a microphone. And what I mean by that is that when we go through difficult circumstances, when we go through hard things, I've found that folks will listen to what we're sharing about Christ more when we're going through difficult circumstances than when we're not. Because when we go through hard times, the people who are around us in our lives who don't know Christ, they want to see, all right, is their faith in Jesus actually going to make a difference now? Is it going to make a difference with how they handle this situation? Are they still going to have joy in this Christ even while they go through that And so as they're watching and as they're listening to you even more closely than they normally would, again, God has put a microphone in your hand to proclaim the gospel and the goodness of Christ in the midst of that difficult situation. That's what Paul was doing with the Roman soldiers who guarded it. Him. He was sharing with them. He was telling them about Christ. And some of them were coming to know Christ. The gospel was moving forward among a captive audience. But also Paul tells us the gospel was moving forward through a courageous church. And you see that in verse 14. It says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without Fear. So Paul is speaking about the church, the believers who were in the city of Rome, and he's saying that now they're even more bold than they were before to tell people about Jesus because of my chains. Now, we don't know why exactly they became more bold because of what Paul was experiencing, but the implication is that they were able to observe the faithfulness of Paul in the midst of his imprisonment. They were able to observe how God was still using Paul despite his imprisonment. They were able to observe the faithfulness of God to Paul during this circumstance. And what happened for them is almost the opposite of what we would expect, right? We would almost expect them to say, you know, Paul got into this trouble in the first place because he wouldn't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. I better not talk about Jesus or I'm going to be next. But instead, what happened was the exact opposite of that, right? They were emboldened by the faithfulness of Paul, by the faithfulness of God to Paul, and they actually, it says, became more bold. The word means more daring to talk about Jesus. You know, we use the word daring usually to talk about people who do, you know, stunts, people who go bungee jumping, right? That's daring. People who climb mountains, right? It's daring, But but I'll tell you what's daring. What's daring is to tell people about Jesus when people are getting imprisoned and killed for telling people about Jesus. And that's what the church in Rome was doing. And it says here that they were bold and they were without fear. They were fearless And so just to kind of recap what God is doing here, right? We would have expected, you know, Paul, the greatest missionary alive, is in jail. He's not able to go out and plant churches. And so the kingdom is not going to be able to advance with the speed that we would want to see it happen. And yet the opposite is what's happening. Because Paul is incarcerated, he's able to share Christ with these soldiers that he probably would have had no access to otherwise. He's able to share Christ with people who come to his house and leave his house over the course of the next two years. And the church in Rome becomes more bold, more passionate, more fearless about telling people about Jesus. And so the gospel is going forward like never before. And so maybe when we go into difficult circumstances in our life, instead of just focusing and thinking about how those circumstances are are closing us in, maybe we need to think about how God is opening up doorways for the proclamation of the gospel. Maybe instead of throwing what we normally do, which is throwing a pity party and saying, God, why did you let this happen? How could you let this happen to me? Maybe instead of thinking that the enemy has won, that there's no way that God can use us now, let's remember that our sovereign God has placed us right where we are for such a time as this. He's allowed us to be in the very circumstances that we are in right now for a reason, and he wants to use us to make a difference. Friend, he might be right now putting a microphone in your hand. So that you can announce more loudly and more clearly through the circumstances you're going through right now about the grace and the goodness of Christ than you have ever been able to do before. So this morning we can learn from Paul's perspective about his chains. He doesn't complain here. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't question God. He celebrates God's plan. He talks about how the gospel was moving forward through his chains. And so we can learn from Paul's perspective on his chains, but we can also learn from Paul's perspective on his critics. You know, sometimes the hardest things that we go through are not the physical things, not the illnesses, the, the sicknesses. Sometimes the hardest things we go through are when people, other people, say and do things that really hurt us. And verses 15 through 17 shows us that Paul was dealing with that. That was going on right at this moment when Paul writes his most joyful letter. Listen to what he writes here. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So Paul had just got done talking about how the believers in the city of Rome were more bold to go out and share the gospel. And many of them, in fact, verse 14 says most of them were doing it with the right motives. They had the right heart. They loved God. They loved Paul. They agreed with Paul's message. Verse 17 says they knew that Paul had been appointed by God to defend the gospel. That's why he was in prison at that very moment, for just being faithful to God. And I'm sure that group of people, that group of pro-Paul people, encouraged him and, and built him up. But those weren't the only people in the city. Because what Paul tells us here is that there were some other people. There was another group of people that were running around Rome at this time who were preaching about Christ, but he says they were preaching about him out of envy and strife. What does that mean? It probably doesn't mean that they were preaching a heretical or a false gospel. Because this passage goes on to say that Paul rejoices, that he's glad that these people are out preaching about Christ. And we know from his other letters, particularly his letter to the Galatians, that if these people were out preaching a false gospel, if these people were getting the gospel wrong, uh, Paul would not have tolerated that in the slightest. And in Galatians in particular, he has some very strong words to say about those who would get the gospel wrong and those who would lead people astray. And we don't find any of that language here. And so that leads us to believe here that this group of people was not getting the gospel wrong. It wasn't that their message was wrong. It's that their motives were wrong. it says they were preaching out of envy and strife. And in other words, they were jealous They were jealous of Paul, they were jealous of his ministry, they were jealous of his influence, they were jealous of his apostleship, and they were taking advantage of this opportunity while Paul was behind bars in order to gain a following for themselves. It says that they were doing what they were doing in verse 16 out of selfish ambition. It's exactly the words that Paul uses in chapter 2 of Philippians in verse 3 when he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Paul says nothing should be done through this type of selfish ambition, this ruthless cutthroat desire to get ahead, and yet that's the motivation for these people and why they were going out to preach the gospel. And verse 16 says this group of anti-Paul preachers weren't sincere about what they were doing, that they had ulterior motives. And one of their ulterior motives, believe it or not, was to attack the apostle Paul, to make life harder for him in prison. He said, supposing that they would add affliction to my chains. And we don't know for sure how they were trying to do that. But it's very possible that just like today, many times preachers will try to gain a following for themselves by putting other preachers down. And maybe that's precisely what they were doing, going around Rome, trash-talking the apostle Paul, maybe even suggesting that Paul was in prison because uh, he had sinned in some way and was not faithful to God, and that's why God had allowed him to be in prison. They were trying to discredit Paul and hurt him in order to surpass him. And I just want to ask you, what would your natural response be to people who are doing that? Put yourself in Paul's place. You're sitting in prison for two years for doing nothing other than faithfully sharing about Jesus Christ, and here are these people running around town, trash-talking you, putting you down, trying to hurt you and add insult to injury while you're sitting there in prison. And and to make matters worse, these were not people who were unbelievers. You know, sometimes we, we would expect someone who, you know, is not a believer to take shots at someone who is, but in this case, these people were believers, right? They, they were Christians, and, and we don't expect that, right? We don't expect those arrows to come as friendly fire, and that's what was happening to the Apostle Paul, and I, I think if it were us, that we would have just been sitting in prison fuming, And just wishing that we could get out and set the record straight and put these guys in their place. That would have been our natural, fleshly response. And yet, again, with all that is going on at this moment in the life of the Apostle Paul, this is when he writes his most joyful letter. How does he do that? I'm sure that he was hurt by what these guys had been saying about him. What people might have been believing to be true about him. And yet when you read his words here, do you read any bitterness in his words? Do you read any envy here in his words? Do you hear any desire to get revenge or to get even? No, Paul's perspective here still is one of hopefulness, one of positivity, one of joy. And I, and I think in order to understand Paul's perspective on his critics, we have to understand Paul's perspective on his Christ. Because for Paul, whether or not Jesus Christ was being made known was the only thing that mattered. Jesus being made known to a lost and dying world trumped whatever Paul was going through personally and whatever other people might have been saying, good or bad, about him. Listen to verse 18. He says, what then? What what does it matter then? Only that in every way... Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. In other words, Paul is saying, regardless of their motives, whether they're a part of this group that's preaching the gospel out of truth and out of sincerity and out of love, or whether they're a part of this group that for whatever reason just doesn't like me and they're preaching out of a false sense, they're not preaching with a true motive. It doesn't matter what their motive is. Regardless, Christ is being preached. And if Christ is being preached, and if people are being saved, and people are coming to know Jesus, then you know what? I can rejoice in that. And he doesn't just say, I can rejoice in that. He doesn't just say, I'm going to rejoice in that right now. He says, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. In other words, he's saying this is the settled decision of my will and of my mind that I am going to choose to rejoice no matter what they're saying about me, no matter what their motive is, as long as the gospel is moving forward and people are getting saved. I love how the message paraphrases these verses. Listen to these words. It's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group is motivated by pure love, knowing that I'm here defending the message and they want to help. The others, now that I'm out of the picture, are merely greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition. And so the worse it goes for me, the better they think it is for them. So how am I to respond? Listen to this. I've decided that I don't really care about their motives, whether mixed or bad or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed so I can just cheer them on. I love that. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to cheer people on who had it out for you? As long as they were telling other people about Jesus. That was Paul's perspective. And I I think Paul was able to have that perspective because of something that we're going to see even more next week in the next section of verses. For Paul, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul's life was not about Paul. Paul's life was about Jesus. Jesus. Paul's life was about making Jesus known. And so as long as that is happening, as long as Jesus is being made known, as long as people are being saved and people are coming to know him, then Paul says, I can rejoice in that. And so in a situation where many of us would have been grumpy or sullen or unhappy about the circumstances that we had to go through, here is the Apostle Paul putting his pen to the paper and writing the most joyful letter that he ever wrote. Here's the main principle for us to take away from this church. Joy comes when we think more about the gospel going out than we think about what we are going through. Let me say that again. Joy comes when we think more about the gospel going out than we think about what we are going through. Those of you who have been here for a while know um, some parts of this story, but we have so many new folks um, at our church who have never heard uh, any of this, and so I just felt led to share this today. Um, Just the story of when our son uh, Silas was born. I think we have a Picture of him there when he was uh, a few months old. This was uh, nine years ago now. And uh, but when he was born, the day he was born, we were living in North Carolina, and um, right away we could tell that things it was not right. Uh, Megan was not able to hold him right after he was born. The uh, nurses and the doctors ended up just rushing him away very quickly to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, When we uh, got there, um, Silas was inside of a little incubator. They had to turn him on his stomach in order for him to breathe. And what we came to learn was that he was born with a condition called Pierre-Robin sequence, or PRS. It's something where a child is born with a very small chin, uh, a cleft palate, and a tongue that flops back over the airway. And so because of combination of all those things are not able to breathe well unless they're laying on their stomach they're not able to to feed or or any of that and so it was just a very um, precarious situation and so they told us very quickly they needed to transport Silas from the hospital where we were in Raleigh to a different hospital across town in Chapel Hill and uh, that's you know one of the images that's kind of trapped in my mind is seeing Silas there inside of this plastic incubator with all these wires and cords coming out, people in, uh, I believe it was orange suits It looked like hazmat suits, as they're wheeling him away from me. When we got over to the hospital, we learned that what would most help him was a, a surgery on his jaw, uh, where they would go in and they would put uh, basically like little screwdrivers into his jaw. And every day after they were placed, we would turn the screwdrivers, and it would move his jaw out just a little bit at a time, a millimeter at a time, and over the course of three weeks, they would move his jaw out enough where he would be able to breathe and hopefully begin uh, eating well, and we'd be able to take him home. Uh, After that uh, surgery, which he had at only about a week old, uh, he was on an incubator, um, on a ventilator, excuse me, for the next uh, five days, and that image of seeing him on that ventilator is one that I'll always remember as well. Altogether, uh, we spent 35 days uh, there uh, in the NICU uh, before we were able to bring Silas home. And uh, over the next year, he would have two more surgeries, so three surgeries in his first year of life. Uh, and then when our son Micah and Titus uh, was born, uh, they were born with the very same conditions. So all the things that I'm describing to you, uh, we went through three times, uh, nine surgeries with our three children in the first year. their lives you know i don't know that uh, when we went through all of that uh, that we always had the right perspective i think there were some days that were better than others but we do know looking back on it now that god had placed us there even in the nicu in north carolina and here in orlando um, to be able to minister to some other people who were dealing with far more serious conditions with their children than we were with ours Uh, even after we've left the hospital we've had the surgeon call us multiple times to be able to meet with other families who whose children are born with cleft palates or born with uh, pierre band to be able to encourage them speak into their lives and we were also aware that during all of those experiences in north carolina and here as well that we were a part of 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 churches filled with people who were observing and were watching how we would walk through that situation and we pray that God would use it to be an encouragement. You know, since that time, we've been, been able to watch other Christians who have gone through so much more. We've had friends who have lost their children. We've had friends who have lost their spouses. We've seen people even in this church with debilitating diseases, injuries. And we've seen how you've walked faithfully through that and how the gospel has gone forward. You know, when we go through hard times, we have a choice to make. We can choose to be sullen. We can choose to complain. We can choose to blame God or to question God. Or we can choose by God's grace to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We can trust that God is using that in our own lives to make us more like Christ. And we can trust, as we've seen today in God's word, that he can use those difficult circumstances to proclaim the gospel in a way that would not have been possible otherwise. As one person put it, the same God who was able to use David's sling and Moses' rod and Gideon's pitchers was able to use Paul's chains. And he wants to use whatever it is that you're going through right now in your life. He wants to use it for his glory. And he wants to use it for the gospel. I want to ask you to bow your head with me for just a moment. And I just want to invite you as David just plays and just sings over us in the next few moments if you're going through something like that right now a hard circumstance in your life that you wished you would not be going through but in God's sovereignty you are that you would just come to this altar even in the next few moments you don't have to wait for me to stop talking just just come and kneel at the altar and just pray ask God to give you grace, to give you strength and ask God to use you the same way he used Paul in a way that would move the gospel forward that other people would see Jesus in the way that you walk through what you're walking through right now. Maybe you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God. I'll be here at the front. Other pastors are here. We'd love to speak with you about that if if you know today you need to surrender everything to God. And begin a lifetime journey of walking with him. Receive his forgiveness. So as David sings and plays, you come right now. And speak with God.